0: Lumos. I solemnly swear that I'm up to no good. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David.
1: And I'm Madeline, and today's episode is called Harry Podcast and the Marauder's Map. Today we will be discussing the powerful new item Harry obtains, as well as the revelations he receives while in Hogsmeade.
0: So as a reminder, we're coming off of the one of the low points of the book. Um, so now we're sort of on a rising action. So when Harry is recovering in the hospital wing, he has another sort of somber realization. He realizes that the screaming woman that he was hearing when the Dementors came to the Quidditch match was the memory of his mother being murdered by Voldemort.
1: Yes, and so kind of off of this, um, Lupin happens to return to teaching at this time, and he checks in with Harry after class. Um, Harry is very disturbed by the Dementor situation, and he talks to Lupin, who explains that Dementors affect people who have traumatic pasts, like Harry, much more severely than others. And then after Harry pleads with him for a while, Lupin agrees to help teach him defenses against the Dementors when the next term begins.
0: And then, um, so all of his classmates leave for the final Hogsmeade trip of the semester, like just before Christmas, basically. Harry gets stopped in the hallway by Fred and George, who show him the secret to all of their mischief, mm-hmm. the Marauder's Map, which is an immensely powerful magical item. Um, it's a fully coded map of Hogwarts castle and grounds. Um, It also shows Harry the locations in real time of every person inside the castle and in the grounds. And it shows secret passages out of the school.
1: So Harry uses the map to travel through a secret passageway to Honeydukes that Fred and George show him, where he meets up with Ron and Hermione. And they decide to enjoy the day together despite Hermione's worries about Harry being out in public when Sirius Black is around.
0: So then... um, Rather coincidentally, Harry and Heron and Hermione go to the Three Broomsticks, and McGonagall, Flitwick, Hagrid, and Cornelius Fudge enter the pub at the same time.
1: So the three of them all hide um, and eavesdrop on their conversation. Uh, the adults, who are also joined by Madame Rosemerta, start gossiping about Sirius Black and his time as a student when he was best friends with James Potter. They reveal that not only were they best friends, but Black is Harry's godfather, and that he was the Potter's secret keeper and betrayed them to join Voldemort. And then they also revealed that Black tried to take Harry with him after the Potter's death.
0: Yeah. So a lot, a lot of revelations here. Um, and we'll get into all of that towards the end of our discussion today.
1: So the first major part of the chapter is when Lupin returns and Lupin and Harry talk about Dementors. mentors. Um, I think this is a really important scene because um, not only do we find out some more information, but it's also a really important mentoring scene between Lupin and Harry. It's kind of the beginning of their, uh, you know, another sort of father figure relationship. Yeah. Um, and I would argue Lupin and Harry, Lupin is one of the healthiest father figures, I think, that Harry <laughs> receives actually, because Dumbledore, the relationship is kind of a problem. Serious later. You know, he means well, but he has some issues to deal with.
0: He's just very damaged. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, um, you know, Hagrid is great, too, um, but not always there for some of the more complex issues. So I feel like
0: Hagrid's more of a maternal figure, actually.
1: Actually, yeah, you're right. He's very (laughs) caregiving um, in a stereotypical way. But I think that Lupin is um, a really good mentor for Harry. And so it's a really therapeutic um, and kind of important first step when Harry actually admits what he's hearing, um, when the mentors are there. He's clearly very ashamed about it, but he trusts Lupin, and and he's also desperate enough to ask for help here.
0: Yeah, I think this is an important step for Harry in a lot of ways, but mostly the way I see it is that he's actually willing to let himself be vulnerable with this person. Mm -hmm. He spent this whole book so far having this sort of, like, machismo reaction to like being vulnerable where he's like i can't show weakness people like people think of me as like a hero i have to be heroic and like when i show weakness in front of the dementors and stuff like that makes me worse as a person but here he's like admitting to lupin when lupin explains like you know this isn't like this doesn't make you a bad wizard or anything like nothing's wrong with you this is like dementors are, are affecting you much more than anybody else because like you have real horrors in your past right Um, And and they feed off of those horrible memories. And so, like, yeah, I think Harry realizes, like, okay, he understands. This is a person that understands my plight and my situation. And so he does open up to him.
1: Yeah, I think that's true, and I mean, we don't find out a lot of new info but we about the Dementors. We do find out about, you know, people with traumatic pasts are affected more, and we also find out that there is a, a charm to repel the Dementors, which is what Harry asked Lupin about. Um, right, and we
0: sort of knew that already from the first encounter, but right. now we hear explicitly that, that it does exist, it can be taught, and Lupin is willing to at least try to teach Harry about it.
1: Right. So that is kind of a preview for um next term for Harry and yeah. something that gives him some hope that he can have some defenses against this thing that he feels so out of control. Around. Exactly,
0: exactly. I think one of Harry's biggest issues with this was that he felt powerless. Right. And that like even just knowing that there is a possibility that he can defend himself in the future is like what's giving him life now. Another interesting thing that happens during this class with Lupin is that like as soon as he comes in Right? Remember that they had just been assigned that huge werewolf essay by Snape. Oh, yeah. And and everyone comes in and they're all complaining about it. They're like, Snape was being so unfair. Mm-hmm. And all this stuff is... And Lupin is like... It's like when you have a substitute teacher who's like yeah, really yeah. mean. And then like everybody comes back and they're like, oh, thank God. Like our real teacher's back. And Lupin is like, that's fine. You don't have to do the essay. Yeah,
1: don't worry about it. And
0: Hermione's like, oh, I've already finished it. Yeah. So we can infer perhaps that uh, this is the point in the story at which Hermione has realized... What's wrong with Lupin?
1: Right, because she has actually done all the research for this essay, which has made her learn more and think about the situation, critically. And it happened
0: to be at a point when Lupin was out of the office, and I'm sure she looked at the star charts and realized that it was a full moon at that time, and that he had been absent other times. Right. Um, So yeah, so Hermione, being one of the brightest students at Hogwarts, has already realized that he's a werewolf. Um, Possibly the first student to realize it, I think.
1: So I wanted to talk a little bit about Fred and George's character development and where they're at in their story um, right now. So they are, you know, they give Harry the Marauder's map. Um, This is them, you know, encouraging troublemaking and encouraging like, hey, this is how we get away with our stuff, which is exciting. It's exciting that they're giving this to Harry um, as like a sort of older brother mentor again, type situation. Right. Um, And although this is, you know, technically against the rules and it's a, you know, not technically a good thing, they're helping him for a a selfless reason. I mean, this is really them, I think, starting to take the steps to become their future selves, which is, you know, very savvy businessmen and um, people that are encouraging fun and mischief, but also... Mm -hmm. Really being selfless and like hardworking and trying to say like we've gotten this knowledge from this thing and now we're giving it to you. Um, when you know, even if they know all the secret passageways, it would probably still be helpful for them to have the map to to be able to see you know where people are and everything um, yeah. when they're doing their thing. So they're, the fact that they're giving it to Harry is um is a really is a really fun thing and very um, I think predictive of what they'll become.
0: Yeah, I mean, it really reiterates that Fred and George aren't troublemakers just for the sake of it, and they're not troublemakers because they want to, like, get wealthy or because, like, they want to put other people down for no reason. Like, they, they pull pranks on people for very specific reasons. Right. Usually it's Percy, and it's usually because Percy's getting too big a head about something. Right. And they're like, listen, dude, like, it's okay. You're not, like, the minister of magic. Right. All right like, calm down. Um. And then you know they they pull pranks to get like food from the kitchens for parties and stuff. Right. They they bend the rules but it's all in good fun. It's it's spirited enjoyment of of life in sort of a chaotic way. Right. And so this is this is more of that. They they're seeing how downcast Harry is all of his friends and classmates are in Hogsmeade and he can't go. Right. And they're like, "You know what? You don't deserve this." we're going to make sure that you have a good time yeah even though you're not allowed to go and we're going to show you that breaking the rules can be a good thing because it leads to like positive experiences for everybody and it doesn't hurt anybody right
1: right which harry doesn't really need a lot of help with that he's pretty good with breaking rules usually um but it's
0: like their mentorship but of that idea to, yeah. yeah they're they're trying to foster this like you know be be like a robin hood type guy yeah, be don't, like be like like a, don't be like a don't be like a loki type guy all right yeah um And And so, yeah. And so they give him the map. It's this incredibly powerful magic item. And they say, like, we don't need this anymore. You can take it. And Harry thinks that they're pulling his leg. Right. Like, totally. Um, But then they show him how the map works and how you can decode it magically. Um, And then it basically, uh, Harry is just, like, amazed. And he uses it successfully to get into Honeydukes and the rest is history.
1: Yeah. And I think that it also shows how skilled they are as wizards um spread and george because um not just anyone would have been able to decode this map um yeah. and figure it out it's complex magic and we'll talk a little bit about what we think about the creators and their skills but i do think that um you know they are clearly very smart and skilled and you know and maybe not in a way that uh the their professors necessarily think but they are and they when they care about something they're pretty smart and good
0: at it yeah and as you said this is going to lead them to be very savvy businessmen later on so yeah uh a lot of a lot of their character development i think coming through here so now let's start talking about the map itself and i want to begin with just sort of like our thoughts about you know when you saw the movie for the first time what did you think the map would look like and how would it be portrayed and and we have the prop right here sitting on our on our table in front of us how How is it represented and how is that different from what your ideas about it were when you read the book?
1: That's a good question. I think that when I first imagined it, it was relatively similar, although I think that it was a little bit more detailed even in my mind or, yeah. um, you know, like really just like every hallway, everything, a very tiny sort of architectural drawing almost – and I didn't picture the footprints, like, are in the movie. Yeah, I did, definitely didn't picture that. I pictured, like, actually, like, little people.
0: Right. Because that actually, that is what's described yeah, in the text as yeah, right, little descri- people. Like a, a tiny little Albus Dumbledore walking around his office. Right. Like, it actually describes that.
1: It probably makes a little bit more sense for the movie or, like, looks a little bit better to have the footprints. But I do like the actual image of little people walking around. Me too. Yeah.
0: And I think you're right. I think, I mean, the, the prop... Because they didn't want it to be, like, t- something that took them a year to make. Right. Um, they couldn't make it, like, a complete architectural drawing of Hogwarts Castle. I think it is a really fun prop, um, but it, it it's not, like, quite – yeah, it's not quite as detailed. I think one addition that I do really like is that there's, like, Latin text representing um, different objects and things. So, like, you see on the cover of it. Um, the Whomping Willow is is drawn th- from characters which spell out Whomping Willow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is cute. So yeah. I think that's really clever. And and the way that they do a lot of this stuff is just using like Latin phrases to draw lines, mm-hmm. um, and 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 like actually detail like rooms and pathways and things like that.
1: Yeah, and you know, speaking of skill, I mean, you, no matter what you know is in the movie or what we imagine, is clearly a very skilled magical object. Um, we can imagine that they're not the first people to ever design something like this, but it's clearly, um, must be really complicated because you have to basically, you know, magically superimpose, like, a whole map of Hogwarts, which is a very complicated map, Uh including secret passageways, which they must have spent a lot of time finding on their own without a map before they created it. Yeah. Um, and then whatever magic is needed to track people basically. I mean it's almost like they have like microchips or something in people that and they're knowing how to do that. Like I know yeah. that's not what they have, but it's it seems like it would be pretty uh hard to do that to be able to actually track people especially within the walls of hogwarts when i feel like there's a lot of protections around that kind of thing
0: absolutely and and i don't want to get too into this because there are questions that we have no idea what the answers are yeah how does that spell work of tracking people within hogwarts yeah but it is a good point that like hogwarts is a very powerfully magical castle it's a fortress yeah and like the idea that you could track people within it um that must be a really powerful spell. Exactly. And I think you're right. Like the cartography of actually plotting out everything within Hogwarts um it's incredibly difficult. They would have had to explore every nook and cranny, every classroom, every secret passageway, mm-hmm. every trick stair. Um they would have had to know the complete layout of the architecture and everything. That must have taken them years and years to compile all that information and then translate it into a magical map.
1: Right. So um just to clarify we'll talk a lot more about this that moony wormtail padfoot and prongs are lupin Pettigrew, sirius and james potter um so that is the crew that's the crew that made the map um we will hear a lot more about james and sirius and then a little bit about Pettigrew later in this chapter um so we'll talk more about that group but that is what we know and just as a reminder those are those are the characters here
0: yeah, and I think like for shorthand's sake, a lot of people in the fandom call them the Marauders. Mm-hmm. I think that's really a misnomer. Um, the Marauders map is a singular possessive Marauder's map. Right. Uh, so they're ref- they're not referring to themselves. They're referring to whomever uses use the, the map the, yeah. as a Marauder. Right. Um, and and they're saying it's a map for a Marauder to use. Um, that said. Uh, I think it's a useful shorthand. It's it may be inaccurate, but a lot of people use it, so we may use it going forward. Um, I personally don't really like it, so I may not. But um, it, it's a useful shorthand. And um, I think it's important to talk about like our first impression of those names and what we what those conjure. Like, can you remember? I mean, it was a long, long time ago. But when you first thought of them, what what were your impressions of those names? I mean, for myself, I know when I hear Padfoot, I think of like a, a bear. Or, like, you know, a dog or something.
1: Yeah. I think it's hard to tell. Or, I mean, it's hard to remember, but I, I think that I wasn't even really thinking about specific animals or anything in this way. I was, I was, it was almost like these are just really strange nicknames. Um, possibly, like, possibly magical creatures, possibly s- something just totally made up. Like, I don't really know if I thought that these were real people or wizards that did this. Mm. I think I had just a very vague idea of. Um, how the map was even made or created before.
0: Honestly, they sound like Midsummer Night's Dream type characters. They do, Like in yeah. a Shakespeare play or something. Yeah. They don't sound like real people. I agree with that. Um, Wormtail, I actually, <laughs> I want to bring this up because I just thought it was funny. I recently reread, um, the children's book Redwall by Brian Jakes and Wormtail is the name of a rat in that book as well. And oh. I think that predates this book by quite a bit. So maybe she was partially inspired. <laughs> I know. I think there was also, um, a C.S. Lewis character whose name was Wormtail. I'm not entirely sure, but, um, I think there, well, there are a pretty certain...
1: good, uh, rat, you know, yeah. makes sense.
0: Wormtail. Yeah. It sounds evil. I mean, you would think- if your friend's calling themselves Wormtail, that's not, like, a great name anyway. No.
1: Also, why did you even choose to be a rat as an animagus?
0: I don't... So that's another thing that that we could talk about more some other time, but my perception is that you don't really choose what animal you become. It's I just like, kind of it's a like
1: representation a, of you and It's way. like a
0: part of your personality. It's yeah. It's kind of like... I wrote an essay on this a long time ago, but, but the idea of animagi as being the same as, like, the the very old concept of like a wizard's familiar Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where it's like your personality but in animal form right and they like help you with magic and stuff like the idea that professor mcgonagall didn't choose to be a cat she just like is a cat yeah but anyway it's not like for me i don't think peter Pettigrew was like one day like oh yeah i want to be a rat yeah i think it's just that his personality is rat like
1: yeah it's true it's true and the the other ones all kind of make sense um But, uh, yeah, so it's a very mystical – it's one of the most kind of, like, magic-y objects, obviously, but especially with the words um, or, you know, the names, it feels very um, magical in a kind of fun, exciting way that we don't always see in this book, especially this kind of dark times book. So I think that this is really – I mean, it's a great chapter in a lot of ways, but I like that we get this kind of – excitement magical fun adventure time for Harry before the darker things that we hear later in the chapter
0: yeah and before we do get into that I do want to say like this moment of Fred and George giving him this object and then his adventure like on the way to Honeydukes and meeting up with Ron and Hermione it is so much fun it is so much fun and it really I like this chapter is one of my absolute favorites not just because of the revelation that we hear Later on, which is really interesting, but also because the the Marauders map is such a fun object,
1: and it's so cool that he just gets to like show up there, and they get to see him and yeah. be surprised. Uh, it I is think really fun.
0: It's one of the more like captivating moments of this book for a lot of, especially younger readers. To imagine, like it, you know, it's part of this fantasy, mm-hmm. right? We've talked to, on the podcast before about how Harry Potter is like a wonderment fantasy. Like you, you place yourself in this magical world where anything is possible. This is one of those things that that really feels like that. That's tangible, right? You know, you, you're a kid and you you imagine that you have this map where you know where everybody is right. and you know all the secret passages. And it's like the whole world is open for you, and there's all this opportunity yeah, yeah. for exploration and excitement and adventure. It's wonderful, and I I really love that. It's unfortunate that later on the map will become such a an overpowered magical object that Rowling will have to go to great lengths to make it neutered mm-hmm. um, to, because otherwise it would give the story away, for example, in Goblet of Fire. Right. Um, and even in this book, honestly. Um, but, you know, it, it's such a fun object. It, and is. it really is a, a, an absolute treasure that it's in this book.
1: And one last thing about the map itself that I was wondering was, um, so, you know, Fred and George briefly say that they stole it from Filch's desk of, you know, confiscated items, Mm -hmm. um, which Harry knows about, or he knows about secret things in Filch's desk because he's experienced that before. Um, But I'm wondering, when do we think that Filch confiscated this map? Do we think that that was from the original crew? Or have others used it since then? You know, what was the... And I, you know, I think it's a little bit uh, of a mystery because you would think that something sort of symbolic must have been done in a way with the original group um, that they wouldn't have just, you know, left it somewhere. They would have either bequeathed it to someone Mm -hmm. like Fred and George are doing younger than them. Or they would have hidden it somewhere specific to be revealed, you know, they would have done something about that. So we don't ever get an answer about that. But I yeah. wonder what your thoughts are on, you know, if other people have continued to use it over the past, you know, 20 years or so, or if it's just been, um, it, it was confiscated from, uh, you know, James or something and Filch has had it in his desk for that long.
0: I don't think uh I don't think James at all would have been captured by filch. I think they're too smart for that, yeah, um, I'm sure they've been caught before, but i I don't think they would have ever let the map fall into his hands. I think it would have been uh, like you said, someone they bequeathed it to, or yeah, someone like they left it in a secret passage for someone to find or something like that, um but even that, I don't think they would do. I think that it would be the kind of thing where they would pass it down to the next generation, which of is kids. interesting
1: in that case that that's not like part of the story even later we don't or this isn't like someone that we know but i guess you know yeah
0: it's not i mean it. it's almost it it almost doesn't seem to really matter that much to lupin peter sirius i mean we never talked to james about it but mm-hmm. it almost doesn't really seem to matter to them they're just like oh yeah that's a really cool map that we like made once they don't seem to understand the significance or the enormity of it
1: no I think. because they were I mean, they were using it for important things. They were using it to help Lupin, but they were also just, you know, using it for fun. So they probably, Mm -hmm. yeah, don't really care as long as it is a student that has, you know, good intentions using it. So now getting into the meat of the chapter, which is the three broomsticks scene um, where they trio is eavesdropping. Um, And I just wanted to quickly point out that this is another eavesdropping scene to forward the plot, which um, happens, has happened many times before and will happen many times in the future in this series. Yep. But specifically in this book has already happened a few times. Um, It's happened at when Harry eavesdropped on the Weasleys talking, when he eavesdropped in the Great Hall on Snape and Dumbledore talking, um, at... Those are at least two times where it's happened before, and to forward the plot. So I think, and this is a huge, a huge, and very uh, clearly explained conversation that I think is interesting. Um, it's,
0: it's, <sighs> it, yeah. Um, I think we can compare it to the first chapter of the series. You know, the Dumbledore McGonagall mm-hmm. conversation. Yeah. Um, which isn't, like, no one's even eavesdropping on that. It's just, like, for the benefit of the reader. Right, purely. right, So at least this is slightly better than that. But it's also not really a conversation that logically needs to happen. And no. it's entirely coincidental that yeah. Harry just happens to be there at that exact moment.
1: Well, and we'll talk in a second about, more about Hagrid and Rosemary being included. But I think that um, Rosemary is basically there to be the person to... Yeah. Not know stuff.
0: So that they talk about it. Um,
1: But it also seems, you know, not realistic that they would be telling her all this stuff. Or that they would be talking about this stuff in public in the Three Broomsticks, especially if they're worried about Sirius and, like, you know, who might be helping him, all this stuff. Yeah. It doesn't seem very realistic, ultimately. Although I do like kind of seeing teachers off-duty um, in this way. Yeah,
0: it's a fun scene. I think if it weren't so important to the story and we weren't, like, examining it so closely, we would think, like, this is kind this of fun. fun, yeah. To right? just... But the fact that it is so serious, I mean, like, Cornelius Fudge being there. Right. Um, you know, it does... It, it It's frustrating because as a reader, you want the way that you get your information to feel organic. Right. Um, you want it to feel realistic and you don't want to feel like the story is being pushed along rather that it's just happening... Naturally, right? Yeah. But in this case, you know, I I think what's probably likely is that Rowling couldn't figure out another way to get Harry to learn about like his parents' deaths and Black's role in it. Right. Um. I mean, because another, he does yeah. need to get that like incorrect information and assumptions in order for him to move the plot forward. Yeah,
1: it's true. I mean, I I think that um, you know, sort of countering my own point, I think that in a way like oftentimes at this age right like he's 13 um even though he's been involved in a lot of things and is mature in some ways he's not going to be just told things outright and if you think about you know when i was 13 i think i did a lot of eavesdropping uh whether you know not necessarily this purposely like hiding somewhere and listening but that's sort of how you pick up things that adults talk about is when you're sort of um, nearby and hear snippets of conversation that you might not be supposed to hear. And I do think that that's, you know, kind of developmentally appropriate for their Yeah,
0: certainly. I think times. the the other thing that we should point out is, like, they don't want to be there listening. They're not trying to right. eavesdrop.
1: They just had to hide. They had to hide moment. so
0: that they didn't get caught. Right. And it just so happened that they were at the next booth. Yeah. So it, it's... It's just the Again, it's the coincidental yeah. thing. Like,
1: And if know. Harry and Ron, I mean, if Hermione and Ron had been there you know alone like they were supposed to be without Harry they would have just left.
0: They would have just left. Yeah.
1: Um but they have to hide. So anyway, it's it's uh it's a very, you know, obviously prescribed scene where they got everything together in this particular way to have it happen, but um it works and it is fun to hear them all talking in a group like this.
0: Yeah, and I think it's less distracting when you're reading the story for the first time because you're so enraptured by what they're saying. Right. It's so revelatory. Um, but, yeah, on on reread, it's more noticeable that this is kind of... I'm not going to call it lazy writing because that's not accurate, but it it's not the best way of conveying information to a character. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit coincidental, and, and it doesn't feel organic.
1: Right. And so I wanted to talk about this group, particular group of adults, um, and how they kind of came to be together in theory. Um, so we have McGonagall, Hagrid, Fudge, and Flitwick. So, you know, McGonagall and Flitwick, I guess, makes sense. They're probably just, you know, they have the afternoon off. It's the, towards the end of term, and all the students are also at Hogsmeade. They're like, let's go to the three room six, they're colleagues. Um, Hagrid, I is a little bit surprising as an addition. I wouldn't necessarily think that they would...
0: Invite him. ...socialize
1: with him in particular. Not that they are, you know... I don't think that people are outwardly, like, discriminating against Hagrid, but I do think that um, it it is an... It must be an interesting kind of uh, vibe with Hagrid as a new professor um, when probably people have opinions about it. Um,
0: I love the idea that Flitwick and Hagrid are friends because... Like, Flitwick is so, so tiny, like, he's a little person, and, <laughs> yeah. like, he's ostracized for that. And that Hagrid is, like, this enormous person, and that he's ostracized for that. Yeah. I love the idea that they're, like, friends, friends. because of that idea. It's
1: true. I mean, uh, yeah, another way to think of it is just, like, McGonagall and Flitwick do seem, like, two of the most, like... You collegial? Know, yeah. Nice, uh, kind, yeah, collegial uh, professors, even if they're, like, kind of stern teachers. So, mm-hmm. I think that... um they sprout probably, too,
0: but I I can't really imagine Sprout going to the Three six. Yeah, she doesn't have time for she that spends, shit. Yeah. She just hangs out in the Herbology greenhouses. Right.
1: Um. So I, I guess I could see them maybe saying like inviting him along, or um, he happens to be at lunch or something with them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and then Fudge. I guess does Fudge explain why he's there? Is he there for the investigation?
0: I believe it's mentioned. I don't remember. I think yeah. he, I think he's meeting with the dementors to ask how it's going and to yeah. supervise various things yeah but yeah so
1: it's possible that he had been or maybe they had all been having a meeting with the professors prior or something where Possibly, they had yeah. all been talking but you know dumbledore isn't there which is again makes sense i couldn't really imagine him going to three broomsticks but I mean, he
0: does say that he goes there occasionally yeah, he does but i think i think it's more of like He's probably annoyed with Fudge right now, right? That's true. And he's true. like, I don't want to. Like, if you're going to go off and socialize, I don't want to join you.
1: That's true. So he, we talk about how, or they talk about how Dumbledore is mad at Fudge because Fudge is insisting on the Dementors. Um,
0: and it seems like the teachers, for the most part, are are on his side mm-hmm. with that, on Fudge's side. I mean, right? I mean, they they don't they probably don't like the Dementors, but they probably agree with him that it's necessary. Whereas Dumbledore doesn't think that it's necessary or even be like happy. a good idea, right?
1: Um, okay, so we can we can kind of come up with some theory about how they could all be together. And then as we mentioned a little bit, you know, Rosemary um, is mostly there as a plot device to be the person that doesn't know all these details um, and is kind of asking for the gossip about Sigurius and then they get into it. Um, but it, it is also kind of nice to think like, oh, they all know her, you know, they've been there for years and... That she is clearly like a staple in Hogsmeade, and that they may genuinely be friends, yeah. um, which seems like they are, and she joins them. I also want to talk a little bit about Hagrid's kind of anger and his involvement in this um, in this conversation. We're going to get to what the actual revelations are, uh, but what did you think about Hagrid's character and um, especially the anger that he comes up with in this moment?
0: I think Hagrid is one of those people for whom loyalty and friendship are, like, the most important yeah. traits, right? It mean, Like, his loyalty to Dumbledore is a defining characteristic. And, and he expects that level of loyalty and dedication out of every person. Mm-hmm. So when, like, you know, the worst betrayal happens, that we've seen in the series thus far, really it is. You know, someone's best friend whose life was entrusted to him apparently turns on him and, and betrays him to right. the Dark Lord. To Hagrid, I think that is, like, the most grievous sin. Right. I think he would agree, like, for example, um, in Dante's Inferno, the deepest level of hell is reserved for betrayers, the mm-hmm. greatest betrayers. Um, I think Hagrid would agree that that's where they belong. Right. Right. But um, to, to, that's why he gets so angry is because... Like, it's the worst crime to him is, like, betraying your friends.
1: Yeah, and he feels particularly um really upset with himself around, um, you know, taking – using Sirius's motorbike, not knowing at the time. He really hard, sort of harps on that in this yeah. scene and thinks about the fact that, you know, he – not really almost gave him because he was following Dumbledore's orders, yeah. but probably – felt bad for Sirius or he considered comforted it. Him. Yeah.
0: Like he said, I he said, I comforted him. Yeah. When, cause Sirius was so shook by what had happened. Right. Haggard was like, I didn't realize that he had been their secret keeper. Right. You know, I, I just saw it like he was their best friend and he was upset. So I comforted right. him. Right.
1: And he was the godfather and all of that. So yeah. he just felt, yeah, he feels a lot of emotions around this. Yeah. Um, I think
0: primarily anger, but you know, also maybe a little bit like, um, Hagrid might feel like I should have realized that what was going on. I should have realized that he was the betrayer and I should have, I don't know, like gone after him or something. Which you
1: couldn't have known. And
0: yeah. And Fudge even says like, Hagrid, don't be ridiculous. Like Sirius Black is an incredibly powerful wizard and nobody except a a squad of trained hit wizards would have been able to take him down or whatever. (laughs) Um, But you know, Hagrid does express that, you know, ardent desire to have been the one to capture him.
1: Yeah. And When we're thinking about um, some of, like, what Harry's emotions and reactions might be during the scene, which there are a lot um, internally going on for him, clearly, but...
0: But we don't get them described, which is interesting.
1: I think that's cool. I think that's kind of better. I think it is
0: better. Because we just
1: get to have the reaction, which is probably what Harry's reactions are.
0: Yeah, and it... it, Yeah, exactly. And it, it feels more like we're there sitting in the scene with them as opposed to just, like, being in Harry's head the whole time. Right. Yeah, that's really we're good. They're also
1: eavesdropping. And then at the end, it's just they kind of all look at each other, the trio, like yeah. in, in complete shock. And then Harry, like, sort of stumbles his way back home somehow.
0: And Harry's under the table. So it's literally like Ron and Hermione, like, poking their heads down. down under the yeah. table. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Which is, you know, but that's it, it is a good kind of suspense and, yeah, writing. Um, but I was thinking about what Harry might be feeling around. Um, specifically Hagrid and all these emotions and I bet f- he does feel like a pull of, you know, more love um, for Hagrid and yeah. also grateful for Hagrid for saving him in th- from that situation and... It
0: might be a little buried underneath other layers of hurt and right. betrayal and, and anger, but yeah, I'm sure he does feel that. Okay, so let's talk about the specific big revelations that we've got. I think I think there are at least three that I can pick out here so first we have james potter and sirius black were best friends in school and they were best friends after school so what does this tell harry what does this mean to harry about their characters each of them
1: well i mean it's complete shock i think that at this point from what he knows in this conversation harry may feel like um since he doesn't really know a lot about his dad he may feel like maybe my dad is a worse person than I thought he was in this moment. Maybe he is – the fact that he was associated with this person could mean that he is not as good as I thought.
0: So maybe some doubt.
1: Some doubt, yeah. Because what
0: he's always been told is that he's just like his dad. Right. And that his dad was a great man. But maybe there was some darkness there. Or, or, or you know, maybe he was just blindsided he's gullible, by this whole thing. right.
1: He might be thinking like, oh, my dad didn't – didn't see this about his friend and um what was happening or he might be thinking sirius is such a insane manipulator that he was able to do that yeah so
0: what does this tell us about sirius do you think i think there's a couple different possibilities
1: i think that from what we hear in this um in this scene especially because it i do think that fudge's description makes black seem even more cold-blooded than we've heard before um the way that he describes these scenes of his supposed, um, you know, serial killing basically is that he seems like this insane psychopath that would be charming and like be close with uh, people like the potters and be a godfather and all this stuff. And then um, could just turn and become this complete evil person.
0: Yeah. I think that's definitely a distinct possibility. I think the other possibility is something that Hagrid brings up, which is, this idea that when you go over to the dark side suddenly like it just consumes you mm. um which is a very i think it's an appealing idea to people who see the world in more black and white terms like Hagrid does mm-hmm. like any person that is a death eater suddenly has no morals no qualms about killing they're completely evil you know there's nothing and no one that matters to them anymore like not their spouse not their children not mm-hmm. their friends nothing um and that's certainly how Hagrid views it, but I think this book is, is the start of us as readers learning that this world is not so black and white, that there are characters whose motivations are a lot more complex mm-hmm. than just evil or just good. Right. Um, and that, like, you know, you might be motivated by revenge, or you might be motivated by guilt. You might even be motivated by fear. Um, fear is a very powerful motivator. So, you know, I think those are all things to consider here.
1: Yeah, I think you're totally right, and that's more—that um, is what we think more as the book goes on. But I think that from what the reader and what Harry knows now, it I think it does feel black and white to him. And I think it also feels just really clear that um, he is this— Evil person, or that black is this evil person, because I don't think that we have information for the nuance at this point. Right. I also think that in what in a way the I think that this scene, even though we so we know that all of these people in the scene have incorrect information, right? Right. Um, but we also know that these are new revelations for Harry, and I think that in this way, um, this scene actually becomes a really good red herring, um, because. Even though what we're hearing is not nuanced, um, it's still a huge turn from what we already known in the book. So it could be, like, and it's we're pretty far into the book now. So in theory, like, this could be the, the main twist. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it makes a lot of sense. And then there, the rest of it could be about finding Sirius and all the stuff that comes with it. So yeah. I think that that's what makes the scene really good, too, in the context of the whole book. Because... Um, this is a big enough twist that it feels like this could be it Mm -hmm. and we know everything. And the fact that there are more twists and more twists, um, by the end of this book, um, is really sophisticated, especially for, you know, uh, this series and what we've read so far.
0: Well, yeah, but I I think this is more akin to the troll in the dungeon scene as opposed to like the, it was quarrel line at the beginning of a man with two faces.
1: Oh, yeah. Like,
0: the big twist always comes right at the end.
1: Oh, I know. And
0: I think, like, if we're reading this book, this book is incredible for the number of twists that it has. Um, But if we're reading this and we've read the first two, I think we should expect to see more twists coming.
1: I think we should. But I I don't know that I would think that... Um, It would twist to be like, hey, everything you heard was totally opposite of this.
0: And I think there's another thing to be said here for the idea of confirmation bias, which is essentially just like the first information that you receive on a topic tends to be the one that shapes your opinion on it the most. So this is the first – well, it's not the first information Harry learns about Sirius Black – but certainly all the information that he's heard up to this point is Black's Confirms a criminal, this, Black yeah. is a killer, Black's out after you, mm-hmm. and now it's like Black was the great betrayer of your father and he's the reason why they're dead. Like, all of that
1: makes sense. For weighs him.
0: very heavily on Harry's opinion of Sirius Black and it makes him much less disposed to accept reality once it comes. Yeah. So, it'll be interesting to examine that later as well. Um, but then, okay, so Revelation number two, we have the Fidelius Charm. Yes. So let's talk about that, because this is a really pivotal um, I think, scene in the in the whole series because it's it's one of the most important pieces of magic that we ever learned about.
1: Right. So this so this charm makes um makes one a person your secret keeper. So how how do you understand how this spell works and what the consequences are?
0: So to me it's It's like a deep magic Uh and it's, it's the concealment of a secret. It doesn't, it it seems like it doesn't really matter what that secret is. Although every time we see it used, it's for the location of your house. Right. Um, Inside a single living person. And basically it's like a pact between all the people that are involved. Um, The secret keeper uh, is basically just tasked with, holding on to that secret and if they divulge it to anybody then the spell is broken um and so it's like this idea that you know you can perfectly hide a secret as long as this one person never tells
1: okay so because ha- i'm genuinely a little confused so help me understand so sure. the so you put the secret in this one person so that means that nobody else it's not possible for anyone else to share the secret the only person that could break it is a secret keeper
0: the only person that can share the secret is the secret keeper but as we see later with the hiding of Grimald place dumbledore shares the location with every person who is in the order of the phoenix or is staying at the house mm-hmm. um any of those people i don't th- i'm not exactly sure how the spell works but certainly it seems like the power is diluted the more people the secret keeper divulges the secret to
1: but in theory, no, if you and I and one other person were – if I was the secret keeper for you and someone else um, about the location of our house, then um, you – if you thought – you, if you tried to tell the secret, like, it would not be possible. You, yeah. You wouldn't be able to speak the words or you wouldn't remember it or something would happen. I
0: think that's how it works. Okay. And, and in any case, it's, like, the secret keeper's responsibility, like – if you wanted to, like, give – it's kind of like handing out keys. It's like you have all of the keys. Okay. If you give a key to somebody else, they can give it to somebody else too. Right. But, like, it has to all come from you. You are the source of the keys. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what I think that helps to understand because it makes the betrayal so much more um, severe because you're putting all your trust in this one person. You're basically yeah. saying this is the person – That has control over my life now. And I trust they will never do anything to break that. The reason why they were actually betrayed is because Pettigrew... Does Sirius tell Pettigrew or does he find out? No.
0: Sirius convinces James to make Pettigrew their secret keeper. He thought it was the perfect bluff.
1: Okay. Because
0: he was like, no one will ever think Pettigrew will be the secret keeper. Right. He's so, like, weak and pathetic. I'm the obvious choice for secret keeper. Dump, Voldemort is sure to go after me instead of him. Right. So, like, I'm willing to sacrifice myself. I'll I'll die. And, like, Pettigrew will be safe and you guys will be safe. Okay. Um, And because he convinced James to do that, they were all betrayed. So right. it makes you really think, like, what if he had stuck with Sirius? Right. I'm not sure what happens to a Fidelia's Charm if the secret keeper is killed. You know, presumably it's like the secret is buried with him. Right. Right. But I don't know.
1: Yeah. Okay. That's, so that is interesting. And I mean, I think that all from the reader slash Harry's perspective, um, our first time reader, all we get from this is just this was a, a huge betrayal. And, yeah. you know, what we've said before.
0: But we also learn about the Fidelius Charm. And I think it'll it'll help us understand a lot of the, you know, magic surrounding Harry's parents' deaths and why this was such a terrible betrayal and all that stuff. And then the third revelation is that Harry is being deliberately kept in the dark by these people, not just McGonagall and Flitwick and Hagrid and Fudge, who obviously bears no responsibility toward Harry in this matter, but also Dumbledore, who yes. presumably knows all of this stuff as well.
1: Yeah, this is our first... I mean, we've had a lot of hints so far that Dumbledore is not sharing things with Harry and kind of questioning his motives, but this is the first time we are like, all right, this is kind of sketchy that he's...
0: Yeah. What's more, I think... Harry doesn't really realize that Dumbledore had been keeping this from him intentionally. Oh, yeah. It's not something that he, like, thinks about overtly. It's just, like, something that I've noticed. You know, I've paid a lot of attention to, like, what Dumbledore hides from Harry, so I was looking for it. Right. Um, I don't think it's something that Harry thinks about, but it's true. Like, these teachers, you know, presumably, because they're looking out for his best interests, just totally didn't tell him about all this.
1: Well, also, it it seems like... Um, From what we, you know, from the Weasleys, what the Weasleys know and other things, that this whole story is pretty common knowledge. Not, like, Hagrid's role in the aftermath, but that Black betrayed the Potters and became a death eater and that he was – like, it doesn't seem like it's a secret that – that he was involved in Harry's family in that way.
0: No, I think I think the nuance here is that it's common knowledge that Sirius Black was James's best friend. It's not common knowledge that they went into hiding under the Fidelius Charm. Okay. So that's the that's the real kicker here, is the betrayal. But the the best friends thing, I agree. That's that's something that any person off the street probably could have told Harry.
1: Right, and so there's there's more. Uh, so there's a lot there's a lot being withheld from Harry on different levels. Um, But we can assume, and I'm sure that Harry does assume at this moment, that Dumbledore knows everything that these people know. I'm sure. um, If not more. So he knows that basically he's being told to stay away. Um, He also is, I'm sure now, thinking back to what Arthur said about, you know, no matter what you find out, don't go after him.
0: I'm sure he's also thinking about Draco. If it were me, I'd want revenge.
1: Right. You know? And he's
0: like, this is it's all true. Everybody knows except for me.
1: Right. And I think that this is almost the worst situation that could have happened because um, Harry is kind of stupid and would go after him. <laughs> and I don't really blame all those people for not telling him. I think that it, they could have shared some of it in a way that um, was giving letting him in on things without it being, you know, a total free for all. Uh, but I think I don't there's know. also,
0: like, there's a way to work with personalities like Harry's in a way that's non-destructive. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean this in, like, a manipulative, creepy way. But just, like, if you understand who Harry is and what makes him tick, you, you know, you can get in the psychology there and be like, okay, well, he's probably going to find out. Right. So let's try to minimize the damage. Right. Let's impress upon him how important it is that he not go looking for this maniac. Because that is the worst possible outcome here. So let's, like, work with him and let's give him the information that he's going to get anyway because we know that he's a real piece of work on the detective front. Right. And then and then let's work with him to understand, like, revenge is not what we need here. And, like, you will find more peace by just, like, letting you know, us... working through this on your own and getting, like, counseling, basically. Um, or you...
1: letting us catch him and get justice that way. Yeah,
0: yeah. But, but not have it be, like, a personal vendetta. Right. Okay? Like, I think there is a way to go about this that's, no, you're right. that's non-destructive. It's just that they no one seems to believe in counseling as a, an effective therapy in this world. Yeah. And I'm not sure why that is. Um, maybe they think that magic has the solution to every problem. But yeah, so those are our three revelations. Um, I think it's also interesting to note here that Peter Pettigrew, one of our like minor characters in this drama so far, is portrayed as an innocent who actually was the first person who tried to avenge James Potter mm, mm-hmm. um, and, and was immediately killed by Black, who blew up half the street. Right. Um, yeah, and as you said, Fudge's description makes Black seem even more cold-blooded in that moment because he just stood there and laughed. Right. Um, and then, so now we wonder, like, where does, the, where does our trio go from here? They're right. all in stunned silence, but what's their next move? What do they even do with this information? i don't
1: really know i i mean and to be honest i don't fully remember exactly what they do at this exact moment um and um it seems like i don't know what you can do really in this situation because harry even though i'm saying like oh harry's stupid and he would go after him like how how would harry even go about that at this point
0: yeah I mean, um, short of, like, standing in the middle of the street and saying, like, I'm here, come find me. Right. Um, it's not a lot you can really do.
1: Right. So, I don't know. Um, I would think that – I mean, again, as as I know that – none of this would ever happen, but this happened in the last book. This happened earlier here, where I think just – why doesn't somebody just, sit, like, admit, like, we overheard this and –
0: <laughs> why don't people talk to each other you mean yes when, yeah, it's the classic problem you know
1: that's like when they heard uh, last book about when they were hiding in cl- the staff room and yeah um all that stuff about lockhart's like why wouldn't why wouldn't you just say we heard about this and we have some information that would be helpful yeah um
0: like harry would really really should like go meet with dumbledore at this moment or like Go see Lupin again, you know, like talk to somebody about this. I think he does eventually talk to Lupin about it. Yeah, but um, you know, he he needs he needs emotional and psychological support in a big way, right? Well,
1: and and even if he's really angry, I would think that you know, even to be able to go talk to Dumbledore, angry, which he's done before, and say like, "Hey, you didn't tell me about this. Like, what the hell? Like, what's your plan? Tell me everything." Yeah. Um, even that would, you know, ultimately be safer and make things, um, a little bit more understandable for everyone.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I also don't really remember what happens. I know that the trio are staying at Hogwarts over Christmas. Right. So that means we're getting the firebolt soon. Mm-hmm. That's um, next chapter. Is that next chapter? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, so that's, I think that's where they go, but, um, maybe, maybe they just try to forget about it for a little while, but that's also not a healthy response either. You know, this, this kind of revelation needs to yeah. be faced. Um, and dealt with head on. So yeah, unfortunately, not the most emotionally supportive environment. But um, we'll see what happens next chapter.
1: Thanks so much for listening to this chapter, Harry Podcast and the Marauders Map. We hope you've enjoyed this discussion.
0: If you have any questions about anything we talked about today, especially you know the revelations that Harry receives in the three broomsticks and the you know the writing issues maybe that go along with that, please feel free to email us at. Contact at com. We really love hearing from all of you.
1: You can always find out more about the show and listen to any of our episodes um, at theharrypodcast.com or on Apple Podcast. Stay tuned for next time when we soar through Chapter 11, The Firebolt. I'm Madeline.
0: And I'm David. And we'll see you next time on The Harry Podcast. Mischief Managed. Knox.